This piece was brought to you by Hearst Ranch, hearstranch.com. When I started college at 14, it was intimidating. And everybody has the experience of being in an intimidating context, thinking you're the dumbest, least knowledgeable, whatever person in the room. A lot of learning and professional accomplishment is about getting rid of that feeling (laughs) And, and being in a room where you're not the one who's dumb and where you've got some measure of control and some measure. And one weird thing about me is I keep going into different rooms then. <laughs> um, so in areas where I actually have lots of ostensible credentials, I typically don't spend that much time working in them. I spend time getting to the credentials maybe, but not as much time actually doing it. HeritageRadioNetwork.org proudly presents Evolutionaries Nathan Mirvold. Nathan Mirvold is an inventor, a scientist, and perhaps the most unlikely visionary the world of food has ever seen. He's the former chief technology officer at Microsoft, the co-founder of Intellectual Ventures, one of the largest patent-holding companies in the world, and the principal author of Modernist Cuisine, a six-volume encyclopedia and guide to the science of contemporary cooking. It's been called The Cookbook to End All Cookbooks by David Chang. And Ferran Adria claimed this book will change the way we understand the kitchen. Mirvold's formal education includes degrees in mathematics, geophysics, and space physics from UCLA, and PhDs in mathematical economics and theoretical physics from Princeton University. In his postdoctoral work at Cambridge University, Mirvold worked on quantum theories of gravity with the renowned cosmologist Stephen Hawking. Well, from the time I was very little, I thought I was going to be a scientist. That's what I would say when I was little. I want to be a scientist. I remember at one point I saw a uh, British science fiction show, uh, Doctor Who. It was the old black and white version. And there was this scene where the doctor is stopped by someone and says, Who are you? And he says, I'm the doctor. He says, Are you some kind of scientist? I had this great reply. He says, Sir? I'm every kind of scientist. And I just love that. Mom says, I started saying I was going to be a scientist when I was two, when I, I, I can't possibly imagine how I could have known what a scientist was. When I was in graduate school, um, uh, in, uh, well, I was in several topics, first in um, geophysics and space physics, then mathematical and economics. But finally I said, okay, this is going to be it. It's going to be physics. And I was 100% sure I was going to be a professor of physics, and I was going to work on the most esoteric theoretical physics there was. All seems very foolish in retrospect, particularly the certainty I had, <laughs> which was clearly unwarranted, but Whatever. And for the kind of physics that I got excited about, the guy who did the most interesting stuff was Stephen Hawking. So I applied for a postdoc with him. I also applied for a postdoc 32 other places because I was not sure where I was going to get a postdoc. It was very hard. When I went to graduate school, I applied two places and got into both. I was absurdly overconfident then, although it worked. This time I was like, oh, God. So I applied all over the world. And in academic physics... What happens is after you have written your thesis and you get your PhD, you then go get one or two or maybe more postdoc positions where you just work doing more research, usually with a lot of help and support from a a main uh, mentor. 
And the idea is you get enough research done that you can impress people enough that you might get a job as a junior professor. And then you try to work your way up the ladder. So uh, Stephen Hawking offered me a job and and did so months before. There's sort of a season to it. It's like applying for college. You know, you, you apply in the fall and you try to hear by April. It's almost exactly the same kind of deal. Uh, if by May you haven't heard from anybody, you're screwed, basically. <laughs> um, so uh, I sent my stuff off in um, December and went to go visit my girlfriend in Japan. She'd moved to Japan, another whole story. And I got this phone call, and I hear this scratchy noise in the background, and there's this person with a British accent saying that they were calling on behalf of Stephen Hawking. And literally, I said, right, sure, because I assumed it was my friends messing with me. And they said they wanted to offer me a job. And of course, this is like at 3 a.m. too. This is the other thing is that it was – you think, okay, this guy understands all of space and time, but this time zone thing didn't evidently get – this is before cell phones. So <laughs> this is calling a landline in Japan. Like, well, you know, whoever was typing the area code in and country code must have figured this was a weird time to be calling. But okay, whatever. And the next day, a telegram arrives. This just shows how ancient it is. Telegrams don't even exist anymore. It was the only significant telegram of my whole life. But there was a telegram uh, from Stephen saying that they were offering me a job. And uh, it was pretty amazing. I had been self-taught as a chef, amateur chef, but into lots of things. And at one point I said, you know, maybe I should really get some – I'm so into this. I should, like, learn for real. And when I was interested in physics, I got a PhD at Princeton. So shouldn't I actually learn this stuff for real? And so I uh, decided to go to a culinary school in France. Well, I was working – for Bill Gates at the time, I was uh, chief technology officer at Microsoft. <laughs> and so I said, Bill, I want to take a leave of absence to go to chef school. <laughs> and, and he laughed and he said, I said, no, really, <laughs> really, <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> so I convinced him um, that I had to convince the chef school. So I applied to send an application. I got this a phone call back. Uh, Sir, would this be a change of career? I said, well, not really, just kind of a supplement. And they said, well, yes, we have these courses for amateurs. I said, no, 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 no. I, I want like the real deal thing. They said, well, you're not qualified. So I said, well, come on, think about it. So they called me back and they said, we will give you an oral examination on the phone. And I said, okay. So it lasted like an hour, hour and a half and they were asking me all of these questions. So one of them was, you're making a fish stock, a veal stock, and a chicken stock. How long do you cook each one? Well, I had read Escoffier cover to cover. I was like completely into all of this stuff. And so I said, well, you, fish stock you cook for 20 minutes. A, a chicken stock you're going to cook for an hour, maybe two, no more. And a veal stock you're not going to cook for less than eight. Well... All right, then. It kept going on and on like it. You know, how many times do you fold puff pastry? I mean, this thing. So I get every question right. So now they're like, hmm, hmm. 
we'll get back to you. So they got back to me and they said, well, you must uh, apprentice in a great French restaurant. I said, okay. Um, so there was a French restaurant in Seattle called Rover's, uh, Chef Thierry Retaro, And I'd been an enthusiastic customer there. Um, and so I said, hey, I want to come do this. And so Terry said yes. And I went one night a week, usually Wednesdays. I'd leave Microsoft at lunchtime and get in my chef's whites and I'd drive over to Rover's and I'd cook through service. So it would be like from noon until 10. And this wound up being one night a week for about two years. You know, sometimes I was traveling, sometimes this. I wasn't always there. After a period of time, the people who worked for me at Microsoft got wind of this. And the first I knew that, I had worked on this dish and plated it up. And T Terry like, was saying, you've got a plate this time. So fine, I played all of this. And then they come out and they said, table six is very offended. You screwed up their dinner. You have to go out there. Like, oh, shit. So I muster my courage and I go out talk to table six. And of course, it's all these people who work for me at Microsoft. <laughs> and they're just messing with me. It was, everything was fine. But, you know, in a French kitchen, you start off, uh, it, it's a very hierarchical thing. It's a very old school apprentice nature. Uh, Terry, the chef, started apprenticing when he was 14. That was how that whole system worked. And in the traditional days, there's two words you need to know in a French kitchen. You, you can actually work in a French kitchen without speaking French, as so long as you know two words. Oui, chef. And in the classic French kitchen, the chef says something. You're looking at your shoes because you're not going to make eye contact. There's that dominance hierarchy deal. And then you're supposed to do it. And, of course, I'm much more of a why kind of a guy. And it's not that all French kitchens are that bad. But... That was the general idea. It was a master-apprentice system. So anyway, I worked through the various stations at Rover's. Now, at the time, the restaurant kitchen was so small that you were never out of physical contact with somebody else. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was always somebody behind you, beside you, whatever. And in a funny way, that worked because you could never run into someone. You were already in physical contact. <laughs> So when I say work the stations, it's not like, oh, yes, they were that department over there and this one over here. We were like right on top of each other. But you learn tons of things that almost no one bothers writing down because if you're in the apprentice system, that's how you learned it. And most of those people don't write books. And if you're outside the system, you never saw it. And that teaches you a lot of stuff in a very hands-on way. Much later, I was at this chef school in France. And the way that this school worked, they had restaurant chefs come in for a, a couple days at a time and do the intensive thing on something. And so we woke up one morning, and we were supposed to bone ducks. Basically, you cut all of the flesh away, and you unfold the thing. So although the, there's, you can leave the leg bones in if you want, you've sort of turned the duck into like this glove that would otherwise fit on the skeleton. You have the whole skeleton taken out. Well, it happens. I had boned a lot of ducks. And uh, part of that was rovers. Part of that was I started making this turkey dish, actually for Thanksgiving, where you would uh, bone the turkey first, which is great because you have this turkey that comes out and you can like slice all the way through it and like it freaks people out. So we start working. I'm like going to town and the chef stops me. He says, you, you there, who taught you this? And before I could answer, he says, you know a duck like a Frenchman. So th that was what I learned in that apprentices. And that's how you have to learn that. I learned at Rover's and then in this uh, French culinary school 
I, I learned in the apprentice system, and I did learn all of those basics. But as a guy who loves science and inquiry and, and transparency, I did want to ask why. So after I retired from Microsoft, I started cooking a lot, and I got more and more into I, – I had been aware of Adria and this whole modernist thing going on, and I kind of naively said, okay, great. I'm going to go find the big book. I'm going to buy the big book that will teach me all this stuff. And Harold McGee in 1983 had come out with a book called On Food and Cooking, which was sort of a prelude, but it's a book that doesn't have any recipes. So it wasn't the manual, but it was the intellectual inspiration to say, you know something, science has something to teach the kitchen. So I'm looking for this big book, and I don't find it. Then another thing happened, which without this I never would have done the books. I discover this uh, internet forum called eGullet. And it had this amazing set of people on it. It had housewives from the rural Midwest. It had people from the great kitchens all over the world. It had folks in hundreds of countries, all driven there as a place where they could discuss all sorts of things. And so I started a thread there on sous vide. The original title of the thread was Sous Vide Recipes Wanted. And I said, hey, I want to get some recipes and get some intuitive understanding of how sous vide works. And I, I'd already bought every book on sous vide at the time, which was like three, and they were all in French, and they were all oriented around industrial food service. So it was like completely not what I wanted. And what I discovered is this big book I was looking for did not exist. I think everybody wants to do something that they feel is important, or at least important to them. And there's two aspects of that. One is important broadly, and the other is important to you. So I do a lot of different stuff. I do scientific work. I publish on dinosaurs. And I have friends who are dinosaur friends who wonder, why do I waste time doing anything else? Because what could be better and more impactful than dinosaurs? I have other friends that say, why do you spend time doing that? That's this intellectual game. This doesn't, you know, put food on people's tables. It doesn't make the world that much better. Come on. Well, the fact is I really like it, and I have passion for it. And at a certain level, I'm not going to be apologetic about saying I'm fascinated with dinosaurs. I was as a kid. We kind of all were as kids. It just didn't go away with me. So that's one where I feel that it's Important, and so I make time for it, even though I'd be the first to admit it's not going to cure cancer, it's not going to do a bunch of other things. That's about intellectual curiosity. Uh, with food, I love food, and I love eating food, I love talking about food, thinking about food, and making these books. And there, I have felt a certain, I don't make this sound too pompous, but I found a certain responsibility that I wanted to get a certain kind of book. I wanted to learn about cooking a particular way. And if I could have just bought that book, I would have. Well, then after looking and failing, I decided, hey, this is something I could actually contribute because I do have the resources that we could go make a 2,438-page book on cooking. 
Is it my responsibility? I don't know. But it was clear nobody else was going to do it. (laughs) And I thought I was passionate enough about it that I thought other people might like it too and that this actually could be a contribution to get this to happen sooner, quicker, faster, better, bigger than it could have any other way. In 2011, along with Chris Young and Maxime Belay, scientists, inventors, and accomplished cooks in their own right, Nathan Mirvold created The Modernist Cuisine, a six-volume, 2,400-page encyclopedic cookbook. The authors and their 20-person team at the cooking lab left no stone unturned in the making of this groundbreaking text. At the high point of the project, 36 researchers, chefs, and editors were working simultaneously on the book. The definitive book on the science of cooking that Nathan so longed for had finally been written. One of the interesting divisions is between artists and artisans, between craft and art. Historically, way back when, there was no particular distinction in that regard. Artists like Leonardo or Rembrandt were guys that had jobs. They were having a, creating paintings was a job. It was a craft. It was They were particularly highly sought after. But creating art with a capital A as a deeply intellectual topic unto itself is a relatively modern invention. But it did occur. <laughs> it did occur. And so we recognize a big difference between art that would hang at MoMA or the MAT or PS1 or whatever museum you want to, to look at versus things which are made in a craft way, a knit sweater, an American Afghan. So uh, with the food world, the food world has been almost exclusively trapped in the idea of being a craft, being a trade. So when people start getting interested in quality, they'll say that they make artisanal pizza. They're artisans, like cobblers, like wood carvers, like a whole variety of other trades before them. Well, there's a difference, and the difference is with art with a capital A, we think of that as being inventive, creative, breaking all of the molds, first and foremost. There hasn't been a retrospective at MoMA of, yes, here's another typical artist doing sort of typical average things. That's not what it's about. Whereas uh, cooking has had this very different perspective, and food has. Most people would accept the idea that art can be disturbing, that art isn't in your control, that art is a kind of a dialogue between the artist and the, the, the people who are viewing the art, and it can be an irritant, it can be shocking, it can be... Now, apply that to food. A lot of people have a hard time handling that. We call it comfort food because it has a comforting uh, element to it. Well, there's also discomfort food, (laughs) and there's exciting food. So I think that all of the right precursors are there to treat food as a first-class art with a capital A. And maybe you don't have art with capital A every day because food also is fuel. First of all, I'm a huge optimist. There's lots of things horrible about the world. I don't mean to suggest there isn't. But there's a possible to have a certain kind of rational optimism 
knowledge, technology, access to knowledge. The Internet has democratized knowledge and communications in very profound ways and continues to. I went to some pretty good schools. My kids went to very good colleges and universities. As people figure out what online learning really needs to be and gets all of those courses online, the ability for people around the world that would never physically get to Harvard or Princeton or MIT to have an education that benefits from that experience. All of those things are so much better today than than in the past. And I also believe a lot in technology. Technology has consequences. Some of them are bad consequences. But so far, we've been able to figure them all out. <laughs> I spend some of my time working on climate change, uh, global warming, both research and applied things. That's a huge dilemma, but I think it's a dilemma we can surmount. And there's a risk we won't, of course. So I'm very optimistic about the world, and I think it, it's never been a better time to be a curious, educated person. Uh, in particular, if you look forward 20 years, the population of curious, educated people on Earth is going to be vastly better. It's way more. I'm not in a position to tell anybody, do this because I said so. I mean, maybe at my company I can do that because I, I am the boss. But within the world of food, I'm not someone who says, you must do this because. I'm someone who says, you must do this, and here's why, and I'll happy to explain it, and here's some pictures, and here's some test data if you really want. Any influence that I have comes because we've tried to learn a bunch of things. A few things we figured out by ourselves, and so their original contributions, a lot of them are just ideas we got from other people, but we've put them together. And that's actually part of the point. You can't be an inventor without being an optimist, because actually most ideas don't work, so you got to keep being optimistic, you get one that does. You can't be a cook without being an optimist, because we've all screwed something up. <laughs> we got to hope this next time is going to work well, particularly when you try something new. So I'm very optimistic that the world is on a better vector than probably at any point in history. This piece was produced by Aaron Fairbanks, Jack Inslee, and Michael Harlan Turkel for HeritageRadioNetwork.org with additional research by Talia Rolf. The songs used in this piece in order of appearance are Crippy Fnook by Space Disease, Coma by Knife Show, Celestial Stream by Obesity, Mad as Dogs by The Hollows, CO by Shadowbox, No Matter CPU Track by Twitter, Bok Bok by Space Ghost, Pyongyang Part 2 by Comanche, and again, Crippy Fnook by Space Disease.